This is Too Much Grit to Quit. Sports personalities Shelly Till and Dave O'Hara bring you non-sugar-coated stories of the famous, not-so-famous, and everyday hometown heroes who have overcome adversity and incredible challenges to achieve success. Too Much Grit to Quit. Discover the key to unlock the chains that keep you from achieving your dreams. Please subscribe, like, share, and download today. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We hope you're having an amazing day. This is Shelly Till alongside Dave O'Hara, and you are listening to Too Much Grit to Quit. And while we have a powerhouse of a guest for you today, and we're not going to waste a lot of your time because we got to get right into it. This is some serious stuff. A lot of times we talk about athletes and, uh, you know, overcoming injuries and that type of thing, but uh, we're going to get into some real seriousness with former Olympic swimming champion, Nancy Hogshead Makar, she was in 1984, won three gold medals, one silver medal. Uh, she's a civil rights lawyer. She's the CEO of an amazing organization called Champion Women, which is a nonprofit that provides legal advocacy for girls and women in sports. They focus on things like equal play, such as traditional Title IX compliance in athletic departments, sexual harassment, abuse, assault as well as employment, pregnancy, LGBT discrimination, and much, much more within sports. So, Dave, we've got a good one today. We uh, we really do, Shelly, and, and all the information. I don't have a personal experience with her as you do uh, and knowing her. but And, and if nothing else, Shelly, like us and a lot of our listeners, she's an Iowa native. Go Hawks. How about that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But you have a, a document that, that Nancy represents, and you and I talked about this off the air, as parents of athletic children in both our past and uh, in, in your case two, my case one. But uh, there are some guidelines that Nancy put forth, and I was able to read the other night, and, and uh, you've got it there in front of you right now. And I really would like, if even if you're not a parent, you know parents, you know kids, uh, Shelly, I think what you're about to uh, tell us is uh, life can be very life-changing, so let's listen uh, very closely, as you always do, but in particular to what Shelly's about to share with you. Yeah, so Nancy, as I mentioned, is the CEO of an organization called Champion Women, and it's an advocacy for girls and women in sport, and she has been uh, a champion for safety, athlete safety in uh, athletics. Everyone has heard, I'm sure, of the Larry Nassar scandal that happened with the Olympic gymnasts and all the, the sexual abuse that occurred there. If you are in the state of Iowa, you have heard about the AAU basketball coach, who I'm not going to say his name because it doesn't warrant Thank saying you. his yes, name. Yes, agreed. Um, who abused nearly 400 young boys uh, in eastern Iowa in a, in a very prominent AAU program. And so this is something that hits close to home. And it's something that happens across the country and has been going on for decades. And so Nancy has uh, championed, <laughs> championed women, this organization, <laughs> and they have finally gotten to the point where they have instituted what is known as the safe sport policies and coach athlete boundaries. So this applies to club sport memberships and Olympic sports. If you're wondering, college sports, in terms of NCAA is all of this is supposed to be covered under the beautiful ruling of title nine, which was passed back in the early seventies. So this particular policy is strictly uh, pertains to club sports and Olympics. So that's uh, I believe 14 million, I think something like that upwards of 14 million 
kids that are involved in club sports across the country. That's a lot of families. So I just wanted to go through some of these things so that you can know what to look for and what is based on these guidelines. What are the elements of an ethical coach athlete relationship? An ethical coach. You're going to be surprised by some of these people. An ethical coach will not text, email, or call an athlete separately from parents or teammates. An ethical coach will not connect with an athlete individually via social media. An ethical coach will not give an athlete a gift. An ethical coach will have one-on-one conversations with an athlete while remaining at an observable and interruptible distance from others. They will not close the door. An ethical coach will not fat shame or humiliate an athlete. An ethical coach will not hit or kick an athlete, will not throw objects like sporting equipment at another person. And an ethical coach will not require an athlete to practice or play on a serious injury. So those are some pretty, uh, you know, there are seven instances right there that are elements of an ethical coach-athlete relationship. And I know a lot of people are probably going, wait a minute, my kid's coach texts him or her all the time. Mm-hmm. And we think that that's an innocent act. And here's the deal. For the most most coaches, it is. For most coaches, I believe, are good people and are in it for the right reasons. But unfortunately, there are those out there who prey on young men and women. And we've seen that in the instances we talked about. And so, therefore, these things are these policies are being put into place legally to give parents and to protect athletes and to give parents an option because what happens is these are it, it, it falls under and we'll hear nancy talk about this later but it falls under the the concept of grooming where a coach comes in and grooms the young athlete creates that trust tell builds it up with the parents and the family and pretty soon you trust that coach like you would your brother or sister and so you don't yep. It doesn't even cross your mind that something's going to happen. They're going to do something inappropriate because you, and they're also masters at making you feel like your child is exceptional. So you want what they have to give and they make promises to families and say, oh, I can get him a scholarship or I can get her on the Olympic team or whatever the promise is. And so they build up that trust. It's, it's complete predatory behavior and these policies and many more. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, you can find more about this organization, by the way, these safe sport policies by going to safesport.org. But Nancy will talk more about this uh, when yeah. we get to her in, in the next segment. Can't wait. And Shelly, we'll get to it right away. I just want to say one thing to what you said, too. And all parents, all you have to do is be wrong once and it can affect you and your child and your children for the rest of your and their lives. And the other thing, Shelly, that you just mentioned that's so key. And when we talked to Nancy off the air before we recorded, they groom the family and the parents, not just the, the athlete or the child. So that's the thing that you mentioned, the predatory thing that just really really goes beyond the pale. So I just, Shelly, I can't wait, so let's do it. Let's get to Nancy uh, Hogshead-Makar, and we are going to, you, I promise you listeners, we're all going to learn a lot, and you're going to hear a fascinating, riveting story, and we can't thank Nancy enough for her candor and what's about to come. So she's Shelly Till. I'm Dave O'Hara. This is Too Much Grit to Quit. Again, please remember to like us, subscribe to us, rate us, uh, review us, give us any feedback, comments you have. We love to hear from you listeners. So uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, guests, 
suggestions, please let us know. Again, too much grit to quit. Shelly Till, Dave O'Hara, back with more. And Nancy hogshead Makar, Olympic champion, attorney, civil rights advocate. She covers it all, and we can't wait to get to her to her interview right after this. Welcome back in to Too Much Grit to Quit. I am Shelly Till, alongside my co-host and friend Dave O'Hara. And we have a, an incredible guest, as we've been talking about in the open, uh, Nancy Hogshead Makar, excuse me, is the CEO of Champion Women, and Nancy is also a Olympic swimmer. She earned three gold medals, one silver medal, and she is also a civil rights lawyer. As I mentioned, the CEO of Champion Women, which is a nonprofit that provides legal advocacy for girls and women in sports. Um, Nancy, I could go on and on with your introduction, uh, mm-hmm. but I would much rather get into your story and the uh, incredible work that you are doing. But first of all, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, Shelly, thank you for, for asking me and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And Nancy, and, uh, I would I, say it takes a great deal of courage and just wanted to jump in and say thanks on my behalf, too, because your story, as Shelly just said, and I'm going to step out of the way, but just fascinating. So greatly appreciate you taking the time and the candor to share it with us and the listeners. Thanks, Dave. No, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I really do. Well, Nancy, um, truth be told, we, in full disclosure, we have to tell, uh, I'm going to tell the audience, you are also born in, a, a, a born in Iowa, so you're officially, technically an Iowan, just like Dave and I. 100%. Hey, hey. No, Go Hawks. Are, are still there. Yeah, I was born in Iowa City. My dad, both my parents graduated from the University of, of Iowa, and my um my dad graduated from University of Iowa Medical School, and uh, that's where he first started uh, working as a professor. Very cool. Well, um, we know that you didn't live in Iowa uh, too long. You Actually, your family ended up moving to Florida, and that's where you got into swimming and um, er- earned a, some recognition at a very young age, um, became very, very successful in the sport. But I want to fast forward to um, the fact that you were able to uh, get into Duke University. In fact, I read this. This was, this was I didn't know this about you. You were offered the first ever swimming scholarship at Duke University. Yes. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Title Nine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and you just can, your your career continued. The success was incredible. There, undefeated in dual meets, set school record in eight different events at Duke. You earned four ACC titles, two All-American honors, and were the first woman inducted into the Duke Athletics Hall of Fame. And on paper, Nancy, that looks like the perfect collegiate experience, one that every athlete would would love to have. But in fact, your experience was quite the opposite for you uh, because you encountered one of the most horrific things a woman could ever experience in her lifetime. And I know that that pain is part of your story and why you do what you do today. But if you could please share uh, that part of the story um, and, and the incredible trauma that you experienced while at Duke. Sure. Um, well, um, so I was a 1980 Olympian and um, I went to Duke that fall right after, uh, we, as you may recall, for those of you in ancient history, uh, the United States boycotted those Olympics. So we mm-hmm. didn't get to go. We went to China instead. And um, I went straight from there. I think I had like 12 hours at home and then I had to report to Duke and um, and um, just was really enjoying the academic culture and the athletic culture, the whole thing. Um, my sophomore year there, <clears throat> um, I was um, 
it was Thanksgiving, the beginning of Thanksgiving break. And um, I was staying on campus because obviously I was training. So um, I was out for a run uh, in between practices. And um, Duke has two campuses, East and West. And um, so as I was running, uh, normally what is normally a really social run, all of a sudden there were not a lot of people around. And then this guy runs towards me. And as he's running towards me, I did have alarm bells going off enough so that I started running in the street instead of the sidewalk. Um, But I was kind of telling myself, like, just relax. Come on, Duke. Anyway, he stops and asks me a question. And being the ever helpful person that I am, um, he said, where is Duke University? And it was just an odd question. It really sort of caught me off guard because he was right in between. Right. You couldn't you had to come from Duke in order to be where he was. And um, so like, whoa, like, are you, like you're not a student, you, you don't know what's going on. Anyway, so then he lunges at me, he grabbed me and he swung me around and um, we fought in brush in trees that were like evergreen trees that had like these low branches so that, you know, he didn't want us to be found if cars went by or if anybody went by. So I was trying to get out of this this brush. I was only wearing t-shirt and shorts, you know, running stuff, and um, you know, it was I was getting really scraped up. Um, kind of everything was in slow motion. Um, athletes have a really good relationship with adrenaline, and they have to know they have to be able to bring it up and be able to bring it down. Mm-hmm. They, um, you know, I had been doing meditation for years, and um, and this was. Um, way beyond <clears throat> anything I had ever experienced. It was it was adrenaline times a thousand, um, and I remember feeling like the strength in my arms like leaving me, and everything was in slow motion. Um, I remember like watching his fist come towards my face in slow motion, and thinking like that should hurt, and nothing mm. hurt. I was just mm-hmm. so freaked out, and. Um, um, and I remember like watching the ground come towards me and like, and, you know, not ha- having it not hurt. And, um, anyway, so we fought as we both fought as hard as we possibly could. He was beaten up too. And I lost. And so he took me back into the woods and then raped me. Uh, the whole event was about two and a half hours. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It was really brutal. Yeah, and he was he was really um, I would say he was like an early incel in that he was mad that I would not date him. Like he was uh, right, and he would like flip between like I'm going to tell you to like this is just a date. This is just you and me having fun. I mean, we we talked a lot during that all that time, and um, you know, boy, was he mad at women. And, wow. Yeah. Um, and it was awful. Awful. It was like, you know, you just like I was just trying as hard as I could to figure out a way to get out of there alive. And so how did you get how did you get away? What happened? Um, so eventually um, I, I 
started passing out. It was a cold night outside, and he had told me if I was shivered, he was going to kill me. So my body didn't have a way to keep warm, and so I started passing out. Mm. And I used to pass out about once a year in practice. So I know what that feeling is like. There's like the it just sort of closes in, like the blackness closes in. And I thought like you are not going to make it out of here. Like, and I was like trying to like talk to myself like don't you dare uh, pass out. Come on, Nancy. Anyway, I had wow. I had already like tried every trick I could think of to make me make him see me as a person and you know humanize myself and um, tell him about how much my mom loved me and um, you know how I wanted to go to the Olympics and you know I tried to right but as soon as I started to cry when I was passing out I kind of thought this was it. He liked it. And he liked it so much that um, we, just within a couple minutes, he was gone. Um, wow. He, um, and, I, I, you know, as soon as I figured out that he was liking it, I started crying harder. And, uh, yeah, so then I was, you know, in the woods by myself. And... Uh, yeah, and I, I remember, like, so I, I had to get a car that was coming from one direction, not the other direction, because he had run off in one direction. I didn't, you know, he had said in our two hours, um, hey, I'll, I'll take you to a hotel room. And I said, no, we're gonna, not going to go to, this is before Oprah Winfrey said, don't go to a second location. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't get a car that was coming that way. So I kept, like, running back into the woods, and then I'd run back out when a car was coming another way. So anyway, I finally flagged this guy down and, um, I mean, right away, like I, I made him do a, like a boy scout thing of don't, um, you have to promise me you're not going to rape me oh before I get into the car. Wow. And I don't think before this happened, I don't think I would have done that, but I was flippity doo da. I was really upset. Understandably so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So then he took you to the, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You go ahead. You you went to the police station at that yeah, point. I went directly from the rape site to the police station. It was just a couple blocks away, and really, the, just everybody from the police officers and the person who and in took the call to they just could not possibly have been nicer to me. Um, I did have a little talking to myself before I went in there. Like Nancy, you've got to buck up and don't cry when you're in there. Mm-hmm. And I did. Um, and it was fine. I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, I was worried I was going to lose credibility and they might not believe me or something. Um, but because my rape fit a very narrow definition of, you know, who do we feel sorry for? They really extended themselves to me. They just, um, you know, the guy, one, you know, I was freezing and, you know, this guy, you know, they wear those great big jackets, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. He took off his jacket and gave it to me, and, um, you know, my clothes were ripped and torn. I couldn't find all of them. We, I had actually left some of them in the woods because I couldn't find them. And, um, yeah. Well, was, was this well into the evening at this point? Or, you know, about... At this point, yeah. I mean, two and a half okay. hours after I started. I would say, I don't know exactly what time it was. But, yeah, no, at this point, it is, it's darker. So I know you mentioned, Nancy, you just said this and you said, Nancy, don't cry. And you wanted to toughen up. And and that's um, I think 
people get a little confused sometimes about what grit really means. And sometimes people equate that just putting on that armor and being tougher and not allowing your emotions or anything to show. And in reality, especially in a traumatic situation that you experienced with being raped and attacked and just everything, it was an absolutely horrific experience. And the fact that you're even able to talk about it even now amazes me, but that had to come with a lot of work. So when you look back at that approach that you told your younger self, um, what do you, is there anything you wish you would have done differently? Yeah. I mean, Shelly, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, when I, when I got to the hospital and they do the rape kit and the, again, everybody was really nice. Um, you know, and I was alone, the doctor had left and I was sitting at the end of the bed and I did have this talking, another talking to myself where I said like, you are not going to let this get you down and you are going to go and live a great life and you are not going to let this be an excuse to not have what you want and you are going to, and if there's one thing I could take back in my entire life, that would be it. It was the most damaging thing I could have done. There are times to have that conversation with yourself um, and times not to. And, and, and not allowing myself to grieve, to get over, uh, to, to, um, to experience PTSD, to not allowing myself, like what happens after you have severe trauma that really kind of messes up the wiring in your brain for a time. Hmm. Um, then, then like, it was like a double whammy of, not only was I having PTSD and like not able to sleep and had some crazy behaviors, but not only that, but then like I felt ashamed and guilty that I was feeling that way. No, right? I mean, there was like yeah. a double, right? It's not, not just that I had PTSD. It's also that I was embarrassed and, and I couldn't reach out for help. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel comfortable telling somebody like really what was going on because you know, I was afraid they would say, like, come on, Nancy, buck up. Come yeah. on. Like, w- really? What's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know? Yeah, it happened, but it's in the past. Oh, yeah, and, and Nancy, I wanted to get more uh, deeper into what you had just said, but I want to do a quick reset. You're listening to Too Much Grit to Quit. Uh, Shelly Till, uh, I'm Dave O'Hara. My friend and co-host Shelly uh, was kind enough to, uh, what a story, and uh, more than just what uh, Nancy's telling us right now, but uh, Nancy uh, Hogshead Makar, uh, an Iowa native, go Hawks, but uh, was in Florida mm-hmm. and now at, uh, at Duke University back in 1980 and uh, training and uh, became, as you'll find out as the story goes, an Olympic champion, but uh, we're going to get more into that but you know nancy i i the, just when you said two and a half hours and my goodness uh these uh shows and our guests go so quickly but in your case you know we're almost at the end of our first segment got about five six minutes left our first segment with you our second of the show and that two and a half hours when you said that my mind immediately slowed and it seemed like and i mean this in a good way not a negative way it seemed like forever when you told that story, because you told it so well, and as you mentioned, you're an athlete, Shelly's an athlete, I'm an athlete, a lot of our listeners are, and we're very analytical. So your yeah. attention to that detail, uh, taking us through that painstakingly, and even for me on the outside looking in, it just seemed like that two and a half hours, first of all, had this, as you mentioned, seemed like a forever, so you're place in time, as you mentioned, was hard to decipher. But I would ask you just, you know, being analytical, as you mentioned, and being so hyper, you know, intuitive to your emotions and what was happening around you, as you mentioned, in slow motion. 
in this part of this PTSD, and I think that was probably one of your bigger hurdles initially, right? Is that you look at it and say, yeah. if only I would have ran this way, or if only I would have, because I'm sure as an athlete, you replayed it in your mind. And then you're thinking, not blaming yourself, but saying, if only I had done dot, dot, dot. Did that, was that you know, the first hurdle? You no, know, Dave, I really didn't do that. Okay. It really wasn't. No, uh-uh. because I was doing something that everybody at Duke does all the time. I was doing, right. you know, it just felt really normal to go running there. I didn't blame myself any more than if I had been raped while I was in my dorm room with the door locked. Sure. Right? Sure. Anyway, right. Right. I, and, and I would say, you know, as a lawyer who represents lots of victims and who, um, is is has been involved in the issue and um, of how schools and how businesses treat people who have experienced trauma is um, is that's rare mm-hmm. for the most part we really give you a number on women who are raped like oh, right. you could have done this and you could have bought and that, and that's what I was leading to because when you said they were so nice to you at the station but you said a key phrase which was they didn't have to decide who the victim was and you're especially that time uh, you know in the 80s or late 70s early 80s you're exactly right and even your experience at the hospital so that was yeah. those two parts were great parts of the very good parts happy to hear that story but let me ask you and then um, I'm, I'm just gonna let uh, Shelly get back into it with uh, your PTSD and everything else that you went through. But so from a legal standpoint, and obviously you being a lawyer, I, I have to ask this, did this case ever come to pass? Did we find out the person that did this to you? Was he convicted? No. What was the end? No, they never found him. And my feeling is he had to have left town because I went through like, you know, the sketch artist with mm-hmm. the, the police mm-hmm. station and then like they put pieces together. And then I, I went through books and books and books and books of, of people. And, you know, they knew... Like, I think they had in their mind, like, what he looked like. And as I said, he was beaten up, too. Right. And so he had to have left town. Durham, North Carolina is just not that big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is really before the days of DNA. It's really before, um, you know, there wasn't, you know, if somebody left North Carolina, there really wasn't something you could do to kind of connect different cases. But I would be very surprised if this was his first time. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I'll just have this one last little follow up on PTSD and let uh, Shelly come back into the question to close out this uh, first segment with you, our second of the program. Again, too much great to quit. My friend and co-host Shelly Taylor. I'm Dave O'Hara. We're pleased to have Nancy Hogshead Makar with us, Olympic champion swimmer. Uh, but we're going through a very, um, very, very tough time and beyond grit, as Shelly said. But so for you then, um, Nancy, and, and I know going through your story and, and when you went back or you talked to the, the swimming coach and he's and, and I'm kind Kind of putting this together, so I'll let you fill in the details. But basically, wanted to get you back and, and get you involved again, uh, back on scholarship. But primarily, you were swimming competitively, and and he kind of had you working around practices, or is that kind of the process? Or take us through well, that initial. No, no, no. So okay. after I was raped, um, I actually tried to call my coach from the hospital, but mm-hmm. he was not available. But I. Um, um, my coach was great in that he let me redshirt. Okay, there so it is. He yeah. said, you're not going to swim for a year. Mm-hmm. I had tried to swim, but every time like, I would let my mind wander, mm-hmm. it would go right back into the woods. Understandably, yeah. So it was yeah. easier for me to study. And so he gave me, he really saw like, whoa, she's a little more upset about this. And, and he, what he said at the time was, he goes, Nancy, you're going to come back and you're going to win gold medals in 1984. And I remember thinking, man. That is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I am done. I am. I. There's no way that I can leave and come back. And anyway, you know, but for him, 
you know, but, but Duke did a lot of very nice things to accommodate my PTSD. And I would say that all victims who are, uh, who experience trauma or who uh, are sexually assaulted deserve what I got. But they usually don't get it. Yeah. Because people don't feel sorry for them. They're like, well, you should have fought harder. Yeah. Or you shouldn't have put yourself in that position. Or why did you have so mm-hmm. much to drink? Or why were you flirting with him? And right, so we don't we don't provide for them what they need for them to be able to move on in their lives. And so sexual harassment and sexual assault continue in our Man, culture. Can you, can, you, can you speak to that in more depth for, for listeners who maybe have experienced this and they're keeping it to themselves or they're trying to put through it like you did originally. What were the steps that you had to go through to heal properly and long-term? Yeah, I describe it as, um, first of all, trying not to have PTSD doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an Olympic champion. So, And I can tell you, it's just not a successful strategy. Instead, what I had to do was go towards the pain instead of away from it. And the way I describe it is like you're holding a ball of pain in your hand and and um, you kind of have to like let it go. Let I let my Olympic dreams go. I let everything go. And it wasn't until I let it go that it could bounce and sort of right back into my hand. Mm -hmm. So. you know, I wasn't thinking when I was when I taking my year off anything about training for 1984 or anything like that. I was really thinking about like, you know, how do I how do I keep anybody from knowing how cuckoo for cocoa puffs I'm being about keeping the doors locked. So every night I'd lie in my bed and I would like lock the doors and the windows, and you know, I'd lie down for a couple of minutes and then like the anxiety would come back and I'd feel like I had to go check the doors and the windows again. And I knew this was crazy behavior, right? So after like date night number three, you're like, Nancy, you know the door and the window is locked. Just go to sleep. And I still couldn't help it. Even though like I knew this was crazy behavior and I still couldn't keep myself from it. I was having a lot of, they call it interruptive thoughts where, you know, I'd be casually studying in the library and I would like imagine that people were coming into the library with machine guns and that they were, we want Nancy. And, you know, they would drag me away or right. And it's just bang like that. Those thoughts would like come in and like, I'd be in a sweat and, you know, take a deep breath. It's just, and it was embarrassing. I mean, what the heck? Um, well, yeah. And I didn't have any back then, 1981, like people didn't know about PTSD. I certainly didn't. Right. And, and I used to go to the library and try to find out about, um, about, you know, how do I, how do I recover from this? And I found nothing. And there's one thing that I encourage victims to do is there's really good treatments out there. Mm-hmm. All those soldiers that have gone to war and have given us this great database of information about how to, how we, how you calm the brain down, or sometimes some people like they kind of go flat, they get like they can't in, engage in life and the people yeah. that they love and right. How do you, say how do you cure yourself? Um, as it turns out, one of the ways that people recover from PTSD is, and I just kind of got lucky is when I went back to swimming and um, it turns out that very, very hard exercise 
helps the brain to equalize. Mm -hmm. And so when I went back to training, number one is I was training really, really hard, number one. But number two is under the water, people can't really see what's going on. So I could like scream under the water and you really can't hear. And I could, um, I could be really, really emotional and I could use that emotion of anger or whatever to make myself go faster. So, so right. So the, the, actually the emotion was productive in helping me get to the Olympics. Well, that I got to tell you, ladies. Well, let's pause here for just a second and continue the story with uh, Nancy Hogshead Makar, Shelley Till. I'm Dave O'Hara. This is too much grit to quit. Please uh, come back very quickly after this brief break for this riveting and very personal story of Nancy's, and we're going to get into more of her story. As we mentioned, Olympic champion, very successful attorney today. Uh, as we talk, but uh, really went through an unbelievably uh, trying time to say the very least. So we're going to get back with more of too much grit to quit in just a few moments. Welcome back into Too Much Grit to Quit. I am Shelley Till alongside Dave O'Hara and we have with us Nancy Hogshead Makar. Nancy is an Olympic swimming champion, a civil rights attorney and CEO of Champion Women and we're going to get right back into this Nancy. Thank you so much as Dave mentioned for your candor and and retelling your horrific story. And I do believe that so many people are going to be helped by this because I still think in this day and age, there's that belief that we can think our way through things and we can mm-hmm. talk ourselves out of it. And we can, mm-hmm. especially athletes, mm-hmm. we're supposed to be the ones that are in control of our mindset mm-hmm. and, and, and in control of our thoughts and that whole change your thought, change your life, which I think is a bunch of BS, but uh, <laughs> just speak to that uh, as an athlete and, and how, difficult and how that actually impeded your progress of recovery. Yeah. I think the whole strategy of like trying not to feel is, is very unsuccessful, particularly with trauma. So I was raised in a family that believes very strongly that uh, people are as happy as they make up their mind to be. (laughs) And there are times that that's appropriate. Like before I go down to dinner, I'm always like, Hey, I'm going to make sure that we have a great family dinner. And I like set my intention and that's what I'm going to do. But, it's really inappropriate when you're talking about mental illness, which is really mm-hmm. what PTSD is. Um, when you're talking about trauma, when you're talking about a, a recurring issue in your life. Um, so I had to sort of reject that, um, that philosophy that I was bred into. My mom is mm-hmm. perpetually happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it, because I just couldn't survive that way. So, um, I, I have people call me who, um, you know, they, they were just raped not that long ago and they're just de- deciding whether or not they're going to go to the police. And what they say is, look, I just want to get on with my life. I'm, I just I'm worried that if I go to the police that this is going to be this is going to take over my life and I'm not going to be able to handle it. And I think I just need to move on. And that was just a bad experience. And go and. What I tell them is after talking with hundreds of victims at this point, that it just doesn't work out that way, that you think that you're doing the best thing for yourself by not reporting. You think that you're doing the best thing for yourself by trying to like forget about it and move on. But it's just the opposite. If you the more you sort of dive into the situation, the more you go towards the pain instead of away from it that that's where the wisdom that you can get from um from life that's where the wisdom happens 
is is in there where that big ball of pain is. Mm. And you you were able to I refer to that and and through the the stuff that I've been um, learning on my own issues with with PTSD and and that type of thing that once you can get to that point, you can actually do a thing called PTSG, which is post-traumatic stress growth. Yeah. And it sounds like because you finally figured that out and you worked it out the way you did, obviously you went on and had an amazing, successful Olympic career. So you were able to grow from that. And a big reason we do this podcast, Nancy, is I always refer to this as um, your pain, using your pain for purpose. So pain to purpose. So you have obviously done that in your career. And so yeah, just kind and, of... and I would say pain with purpose, but like you, sh- you should not be in extreme pain for a long time. Like right. there are really good treatments out there. And if you're in extreme pain, go find one of those treatments. I mean, again, I had to kind of fall into mine, but when I was training, I was saying not only did I cry and scream under the water, but also like I used to relive it, but I mm-hmm. would have a different outcome. Right. So this mm, time, yeah. instead of uh, losing the fight, I won the fight. Mm, right. Yeah. I had this time I had a, a samurai sword with me and I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. slice and dice and, <laughs> and yes. blood would be splattering everywhere. And I was joy filled. <laughs> no but, wonder you were uh, going so fast in the water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So and it turns out like that is another way that the brain can heal is right. Again, like I had a whole year and a half of when I was training where I was doing, doing this all, all the time, because as I said, it did make me go faster. So, um, and I I did not start speaking out about this. I mean, I'm 57 years old now. I did not start start speaking out until about, mm, I think about 15, 16 years ago, my mentor, Richard Lapchick, who runs the um, Davos Sports Business Center uh, in uh, at um, uh, University of Central Florida. Yes. He um, he said, you know, Nancy, it's just time. Like it's it's good, great that you're an expert on the topic, but people really need to know your story yep. because you know you really have a platform for being able to teach it. So I mean, that's what like. 30 years before mm-hmm. I was able to talk about it. If you had, if you had asked me like what at the Olympics, like I would have broken down in tears right away. I'm oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I actually did some work training work for, uh, his organization. Um, I did. The, yeah. The consortium for academic and sport. Which yeah. Is, uh, right, right. Yeah. Which they've since changed, but I, I digress. Um, but I just want to talk about when it, when I mentioned that pain to purpose, you're right. They don't have, you don't have to stay in pain, but when, once we can get through that, once we can talk about it and we learn the lessons, now you are utilizing your experiences in a positive way as you have become, and not only in your, in your, as an attorney, but talk to us about your organization, Champion Women. Sure. Well, just real quick, I just want to sort of wrap that idea up as I don't want people to get the idea Nancy was raped and then she won three gold medals in the Olympics and you can too. Mm. No, right. I did not do it. You're like, it wasn't this linear uh, thing that happened. It was, um, you know, there's a lot of troughs and valleys and, um, you know, I had to work through an awful lot to be able to get there. And I, again, I just want to say I really got a lot of very special treatment from Duke University and I really believe that uh, all the women who are sexually assaulted need to have those same kinds of academic um, uh, um, adjustments. The financial penalty 
um, of dropping classes and adding classes is taken away. The, um, you know, I had a special parking pass, all that stuff. I just, you know, I'm, I, 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 I didn't do it by myself. In other words, like right. people really busted it for me. And, and like in some ways I'm a little embarrassed because almost none of my clients get that. Mm. They mm. usually get, frankly, just the opposite. Like, why are actually, we there? And they, yeah, they absolutely need that. You've got to have do. support to get through the Really do. Yeah, yeah, and then there's there's a lot of shaming over, mm-hmm. um, like, the meltdown that happens every afterwards, right? Right. So, the, and it's pretty predictable. Typically, people isolate themselves, and they may drink too much, or they may um, become more promiscuous, or they may start... Um, you know, using drugs or whatever. And like, there's blame associated with that instead of empathy for that. Like, yep, that's what happens after somebody is sexually assaulted. Mm. Uh, and, and nobody blamed me, even though they really could have. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I asked you, Nancy, when I said, did you kind of play that, not the blame game, the self blame game, but, you know, go through your mind, could it here, here and here? Cause what you just said, and unfortunately, and I'm not excusing what I, you know, what I said or how I feel, but you know, that has become a societal thing. Like you said, when you said, unfortunately they didn't get the, a lot of victims don't get treated as well or quote unquote, as fairly as you did or justly as you did. And that just really boggles my mind in this day and age that, that we still have an issue as a society or a legal system in dealing with that it still blows my mind yeah yeah yep i'm with you and that's so okay. after oh yeah so yeah after uh after uh the olympics i knew that i wanted to do something for uh women and i just thought women in sports was probably the best way that i could make my mark uh that i could make the biggest difference just because having such a strong athletic background so um um so that's what I did is I, I um, after law school, went to work for a private firm and I was a professor of law for a time. And um, so and and work now in Champion Women is we provide the legal advocacy that athletes need and coaches need to be able to be successful. So we um, we do like the policy kinds of things that you can't do if you're just strictly representing clients. Um yeah, so we, we do a lot of good work. <laughs> you know, Nancy, another thing that jumps out at me in going through your bio, and there's just so many nuances to your story, uh, none the least of which, again, I can't overstate this enough. It's not every day, Shelley, we get to talk to an Olympic champion, and that doesn't diminish the accomplishments uh, of a lot of our other guests, but it's just that still the, the mental, uh, you know, the highest of highs. And like you said, if someone would have asked you, you know, about your assault, you would have broken down in tears. So, I mean, that you're still in a juxtaposition at your highest point in your life, seemingly, athletically, the Olympics, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're right on the edge of that. But one thing that really jumped out at me, and I got a champion, you know, if, if you didn't have enough on your plate already, but uh, my daughter was a sports asthma sufferer, and um, I was in Fox Sports Radio in Kansas City for a number of years, so I lived in Kansas, still an Iowa native, like you and Shelly, but, uh, and my daughter was a basketball player, cross-country runner, and, and a uh, distance runner in track, and won a state award for the state of Kansas for athletes with asthma. And I think that's another thing. Yeah, and, and so that caught my attention, so kudos to 
you on, you know, uh, you traveled the country, uh, oh, 20 some years ago doing that. Um, but what I love about that is, and, and it's still just, again, another thing that just gets in my craw at this day and age, you know, we're almost at 2020 and we still have a difficult time either uh, assessing it or acknowledging it or, you know, athletes with asthma. And, you know, there were a couple of times my daughter Kelsey would go, dad, I don't know what's wrong with me. And, you know, she was doing very well in winning state and, or, you know, winning, you know, being state medalist and that type of thing. But she felt like you and, and everybody else who goes through this, that I could do more. And I just, the, the fact that you've brought light to that and so many other things that, that just kind of caught me personally. So I had to say thank you for your fine work on that as well. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. That, now, so did Nancy, you have a tough time dealing with that or were you able to medication or how did you get through that yourself? Just real quickly. Oh, um, yeah, I found that for me to be able to compete, uh, for me to be able to live right now, right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I need to pre-medicate. So before I mm-hmm. exercise and right when a cold starts coming on, I, I try not to wait until symptoms are kind of out of control. Right. But it's, for so many people with asthma, they want to like wait till they get sick and then start using the medication. Yeah, that but, was like, us, right? Yeah. Three times, five times the amount of medication. But like nobody wants to take medication when they feel just fine. Yeah. And so, but my trick is um, is to get on it. It's it, it's kind of like an overuse injury with athletics in that overuse injuries, as opposed to like getting you know hit in the face or. Um, or, you know, falling off a balance beam or something like that. And sure. overuse injuries is, we like to say, it's a slow train coming. Yeah. And you got to learn how to recognize them. And asthma is like that. Typically, it's a slow train coming. And if it feels like it's bang all of a sudden, usually that means that you're kind of out of touch with your body and you don't really recognize those early symptoms. Right. And that was us. So thanks for sharing that. And a quick reset again. This is Too Much Grit to Quit. Shelly Till. I'm Dave O'Hara. We're also, we're joined by Olympic champion and uh, an attorney and an advocate. Uh, every every positive uh, adjective we want to use to describe uh, Nancy Hoghead's uh, uh, make our. And Nancy, again, uh, I would just, uh, I know Shelly was going in another direction. But again, thank you for your candor on all things so far. It's just been very riveting and greatly appreciate the input. Yeah. Hey, Nancy, I want to I want to make sure that we get uh, ample time for your champion women and specifically um, your work with the safe sport policies and coach athlete boundaries. Um, and just to kind of set this up for listeners, uh, many people are obviously familiar with the Larry Nassar sexual abuse mm. of the Olympic gymnast, over 350 young mm. women um, that he sexually abused. It was just horrific. And like you said earlier, took uh, took it to, to get the government the federal authorities involved to make some changes with the olympic committee but uh locally here in the state of iowa unfortunately a similar situation happened not just last year uh in or this year in october um, an aau basketball coach boys basketball coach in the state of iowa Uh was convicted of sexual uh, misconduct with over 400 boys Mm. that he had the opportunity to coach and this happened right here in eastern iowa and um, my son played briefly with that organization Um, thankfully he wasn't one of the victims but we know people who were this is rampant and i think that people don't realize uh, how rampant this type of behavior is and i know that you're uh, addressing this in the club sports Mm -hmm. which would include aau correct yeah I, i started working in the school area but the school area is covered by this wonderful statute title nine right it's the statute that just keeps on giving 
which is all about eliminating sex discrimination in schools. Well, Title IX doesn't apply to clubs. So when your kid goes to sign up for a soccer team right down the street, they are in the club system. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's estimated to be about 16 million athletes. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. And um, so, uh, so, so w- what happens to those folks? Um, and we like to say um, not every coach is a pedophile, clearly. But every pedophile wants to be a coach because coaches have access to kids. They try to be alone together, and usually, you know, the the society allows them to in ways that they wouldn't allow a a school. Um, Right around 2010, I kind of recognized, like, there is such a huge legal difference between getting abused as part of a school program and then being abused as part of a club program so schools have assets a lot of times clubs they just rent their facilities there's no asset if you want to sue to be able to get the resources you need to be able to recover from the abuse there's nothing there's no asset to go after there's no the the insurance that they have rigged up with the ussoc the united states olympic and paralympic committee uh is woefully insufficient and so I started getting involved in this issue of of um, sexual abuse in that in the club sport movement. And um, so after years and years and years, the only thing that was different about NASAR was scale. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing a lot more of those scales, just like what's happening, what happened in Iowa with the boys basketball coach. You're seeing a lot more scale type issues all around the country. Um, but the issue of sexual abuse and athletes being uniquely vulnerable to it in that, um, you know, you have certain norms around other people who have power relationships between, um, between, right. So if, if somebody's, you know, me as an attorney, I cannot have a romantic or sexual relationship with one of my clients, even if they're at your age, Shelly, or right. Right. So, um, and I can lose my license over it. So same thing with, um, but, but but you don't have those same kinds of cultural norms, which we need to ha- need to change um, so that people recognize this as a power relationship and put all of the same, um, um, you know, prohibitions around it that we would any other type of power relationship, particularly as you get more elite. The, the International Olympic Committee did some really great research showing that the more elite the athlete, the more likely they were to be abused from someone within their own entourage. Wow, mm-hmm. wow. So if, if they know that, and then you would think, when I, when I first went to the Olympic Committee, I honestly thought, like, they're just going to welcome me with open arms. We have an Olympic champion that just happens to have done this kind of work in a school setting for years and years. And sure, what what can you help us with? No, <laughs> they. It's hard to imagine, but the Olympic Committee truly did not want to be responsible, did not want to have to intercede, did not. They didn't want it to be their problem. They wow. wanted somebody else to take care of it. Yeah. And so it took us getting federal legislation to make it their problem. We changed one of the one of the reasons for the um, United States Olympic and Paralympic 
committee to exist is to protect athletes from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Well, and you look at what happened with Michigan State, as Shelley just said, and you mentioned too, Nancy, with Nassar, and there were a lot of administrators that went down the, the drain with him because they did not want to deal with it, and a lot said, well, I wasn't aware it was happening. Well, you get paid to know what's happening, so that's no longer an excuse. So uh, I thought you just hit that nail on the head. And Shelley, unfortunately, uh, we're getting low on time here, but I will ask this, Nancy, because uh, we're recording yeah. this. Would you please, because you've got so much we could talk to you about, and we know you're incredibly busy, but unfortunately, we've got just a couple minutes left of this episode, and I'm going to have Shelley, you know, do her, we have a usual closing question, but I would impart and ask for Shelley and me both if we could ever have you back uh, in the near future when it works in your schedule, because you just, we're just scratching the surface with you and your stories. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to, and I um, our, my organization, Champion Women, we're really doing great stuff. We're, we're yeah. still working in Congress to try to get uh, changes to the Olympic Committee. And I gave you all our, our one pager that we're yes. doing everything we can to get it out there across the country that would go to every family, to go to every athlete, and go to every coach about normal expectations between coaches and athletes. Uh, the, 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 the materials that are out there from the United States Center for Safe Sport are just not very easy to understand. So we, there are very much so bright line rules for coach conduct, and those need to become much more normalized. And I will put a link directly to that um, oh, in our you. show notes uh, for that, Nancy. But if there's someone listening right now, and again, uh, I wish we had so much more time because I'd love to go through the details of this, but I was a, a parent of kids in club sports forever. Um, yep. And so yeah, I know here, there's yeah. a lot of them out there. And so what is it that they you want them to know? And if they suspect anything, what can they do? Well, um, first of all, every family and every child, you can teach a, a five-year-old about this, every child needs to learn about what is grooming behavior. And um, so we, we have certain prohibitions about a good ethical coach will not give you a gift. They won't text you individually. They'll always be part of a team. They won't um, um, be friends with you on social media. Um, they won't try to be alone with you. They won't try to close the door. Um, so anyway, so to teach everybody what grooming behaviors are and what professional boundaries are. If, if, we can, if we can do that so that you want the hair on the neck of the kid to go up long before you get to the issue of good touch, bad touch. By the time that you get to good touch, bad touch, you're doomed already. The, the family's already been groomed. They all think this guy's wonderful. Everybody thought Larry yeah. Nassar was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm quite sure they thought this boys basketball coach was wonderful. Um, you know, and, you know, it's right. So you want to get, get those, uh, get those boundaries uh, up long beforehand and then act when the boundaries get broken, the early boundaries get broken rather than waiting uh, until there's touching going on because it, it, the, the model for athletes getting abused is not like what happened to me. It's not a, they don't mm -hmm. drag a kid into the weight room. Instead um, they, they get a, a quote unquote relationship with the athlete over a long period of time. And unfortunately, in our society, if she's post-puberty, they'll say, they'll kind of put the blame or the responsibility on her. Yeah. And, and yeah. So anyway, so we, we, we do a lot of work to uh, make sure that um, the, the, this Olympic space is one that is, um, has appropriate boundaries 
and um, uh, that 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 people do know what to do when something happens. Well, and it's such valuable information. And, and as Shelley mentioned, you were talking, Nancy, even with my daughter and her club sports in another state, another city, a larger city. Uh, but then you can also, besides Nassau, you can bring up Jerry Sandusky. So it's not just club mm-hmm. sports, it's university sports, you know, major yeah. sports. It just, again, I hate to use the phrase boggles the mind, but I'm still shaking my head at this day and age that we're still going through this. But as you mentioned, we got to acknowledge it and move forward past it. But on behalf of Shelley and I, again, Nancy, it, I, 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 it, it pains me to to say we've got to say our goodbyes now but we're going to get you back very soon on this episode on these podcasts and again from the bottom of my heart your story is just it's been riveting and i can't believe the time has gone this quickly so thank you again so much for taking us through everything thank you dave and thank you shelly very much for inviting me and uh you know it's an uncomfortable topic but people really have to think about it darn right uh, and yeah to make it stop Nancy, thanks again for Shelly Till. I'm Dave O'Hara and Too Much Grit to Quit. And also uh, major props and thank yous to Olympic champion, attorney, advocate, uh, champion for women uh, organization to Nancy hogshead Makar. Thank you so much, Nancy. And to you, the listeners, again, remember to subscribe, rate, and review us. We love your comments. For Too Much Grit to Quit, that's all from us. Thanks to all of you. This is Too Much Grit to Quit. Sports personalities Shelly Till and Dave O'Hara bring you non-sugar-coated stories of the famous, not-so-famous, and everyday hometown heroes who have overcome adversity and incredible challenges to achieve success. Too Much Grit to Quit. Discover the key to unlock the chains that keep you from achieving your dreams. Please subscribe, like, share, and download today.